0: Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Hi everyone, Steve Magnus here. Welcome to a special bonus episode of the Growth Equation Podcast. You're in for a treat today. I'm going to read an excerpt from my latest book, Do Hard Things. If you haven't checked it out yet, consider doing so. It's available anywhere books are sold on ebook, hardcover, or audiobook. If you have already listened to read it, well first off, thanks for doing so. It really helps to support the work Brad and I do here at The Growth Equation. And maybe if you've already listened to it, consider forwarding or passing along this podcast to someone who might, you know, enjoy or need the book or might be on the fence for buying it. So, without further ado, let's jump right in. Today, I'm going to read an abbreviated excerpt, an adaptation from Chapter 2. chapter is called Sink or Swim? How We Took the Wrong Lessons from the Military. In 1954, Texas A&M was far from the cash-rich and athletic-hungry university that it's known as today. It was the Cal College. A men's only school stuck in the past. As one student remarked of the time, the campus looked a little bit like a penitentiary. So when football coach Paul Bear Bryant picked up and left the University of Kentucky for Texas A&M, it not only was a surprise, but it provided hope for the university's fledgling football team. When Bryant stepped foot on the A&M campus, he knew he needed to make a change, and it was going to start with the preseason camp. In the summer of 1954, Bryant and his team of nearly 100 players set out for the small Texas town of Junction, situated 140 miles west of Austin, or more precisely, the middle of nowhere. The team was looking forward to the camp, As senior quarterback Elwood Kettler recalled, there was supposed to be swimming, nice green grass. I was looking forward to it. I thought it was going to be like a vacation. Bryant had other ideas. He was determined to harden his team, to separate the quitters from the keepers, and to send the message that change was brewing in College Station. Junction provided the perfect backdrop. The Facilities were so sorry that just looking at the place would discourage you, Bryant later wrote, and the fields they practice on weren't much better. It wasn't a football field. It wasn't any kind of field, Dennis Goring recalled years later. A blistering heat wave and one of the worst recorded droughts in the Texas Hill Country wreaked havoc on the small town. Practice was brutal, as Mickey Herskowitz reported for the Houston Post, They had a full-scale scrimmage, the very first thing, and guys were throwing up all over the place. As camp wore on, player attrition mounted. The newspapers of the day even (laughs) kept a tally. Six-player quit team at Texas A&M, read the headline in the Washington Post. Rob Roy Spiller, the bus depot attendant at the time, recalled players desperate to escape the training camp from hell. As the boys approached the depot, Spiller asked, Where would y'all like to go this morning? The typical reply, We don't care. First bus out. By the end of the 10-day camp, by most accounts, between 27 and 35 players remained. Nearly 70 players had quit. Gene Stallings bluntly summarized the attrition in Jim Dent's classic book on the subject, The Junction Boys. We went out there in two buses and came back in one. Bryant would go on to achieve legendary status in college football at the University of Alabama, winning six national championships and becoming one of the most revered coaches in history. Before he left for Alabama, Bryant did just what he said he would. He turned Texas A&M into a national title contender, going 9-0 and in 1956. The Junction Boys camp was a central component to that success. It transformed the culture of a downtrodden team, developing a core nucleus of players who would overcome any obstacle. As Bob Easley, a foldback on that 1954 team, put it, you go through 10 days of hell, and you go in as a boy, and you come out as a man. Survive, and you thrive. The story of the Junction boys has become a symbol for coaches and players everywhere. While harsh, the training camp was a rousing success. If you want to get the best out of a team, weed out the weak players and harden the remaining ones. Toughening up individuals was the secret to success. It's a story that's been memorialized in a best-selling book and an ESPN movie. It's a story that we've held on to as the blueprint for creating toughness. But that Junction Boys team, the 30-odd players who lasted, how did they fare that season? Their first game was a 9-41 drubbing from Texas Tech. And the rest of the season didn't get much better. One win, nine losses. Popular lore often overlooks their abysmal results that season and points to A&M success two years later when they finished 9-0 in 1956. The Junction Boys camp has gone down in history as the focal point of the turnaround. But like most things, it's easier to assign attribution after the fact than to know the true cause. Only eight players who survived the camp from hell played on the winning Texas A&M team two years later. John David Crow a future Heisman Trophy winner, would serve as the backbone of the undefeated team, leading the team in touchdowns and yards. Crow was part of the Junction Boys team, but as a true freshman, he wasn't allowed to travel with the group to camp. The star quarterback of that same undefeated team, Jim Wright, another freshman who didn't go to Junction. Their All-American tackle, Charlie Kruger, same story. He stayed at home. Years later, Ed Dudley, a, f- a member of the A&M team during the Bryant years, summed it up. Our freshmen in 1954 won the conference in 1956. The eight players who survived Junction played a large role, but so did another change at A&M. They landed blue-chip prospects. Through a combination of Bryant's skill and the help of bending and breaking recruiting rules, A&M got better talent to complement their core players. In his autobiography, Brian explained, the first year was brutal. We could hardly get anybody to come to A&M, and I know some of our alumni went out and paid a few boys. Better talent meant better results, regardless of how that talent was acquired. While tactics like those employed by Bryant have entered the sporting lore as a way to develop toughness, they were actually anything but. The camp wasn't about creating tough players. It was about sorting. Separating the wheat from the chaff, as Bryant would later say. And even that seemed to fail. Top recruits, future NFL players... And even a future war hero quit after Bryant's antics. The quitters included all Southwest Conference players, Fred Broussard, who would go on to play in the NFL, and Joe Boring, who switched to baseball and led the Aggies to a conference title in that sport. It's tempting to paint the picture that those who survived did so because they were tougher. But that's too simplistic of a narrative. Foster Tudor Teague was one of the players who the papers of the day reported leaving camp due to injury. Teague went on to become a top gun fighter for the Navy, flying the F-8 and F-4 fighters during Vietnam. His resume is littered with superlatives, including earning a Silver Star, commanding the aircraft carrier USS Kitty Hawk and being selected as a pilot for a top-secret program to test out a Soviet MiG fighter. Gifted players like Teague, Broussard, and Boring didn't leave camp because they weren't able to handle it. Whether because of injury or priorities, mindless suffering in the dry heat lost its appeal. That's no more of an indicator of their internal fortitude than an employee working long hours for minimum age, resigning to find a better opportunity. And the players who lasted, they didn't do so out of some inner strength or resolve. Many did so because they had no other choice. Jack Pardee echoed a familiar refrain for those who made it through camp. I never thought about quitting. If I did, where would I go? Running back Bobby Drake Keith summed it up best. A lot has been made about the ones who stuck it out, being stronger or whatever, but I think most of us survived because football was important to us for whatever reason, and it was in our nature to do whatever we had to do to stay on the team and stay in school. Our instinct was survival. Success is complex. Now, I'm not proclaiming that Bryant wasn't a great coach or teacher in many regards. But when it comes to developing toughness, we have to ask whether the dejunction camp was successful or not. It accomplished precisely what Bryant wanted at the time, eliminating players after a coaching regime change. But did it develop toughness? The immediate performance gains, or lack thereof, suggest otherwise. And if it did work, then it did so for one-third of his team at best. It fundamentally failed for the other two-thirds. Throw eggs at the wall, see which ones don't break. We need to outgrow this this old model of toughness. Even Bryant did. At a 25-year reunion of the camp survivors, Brian apologized to his former players, acknowledged that he had mistreated them. In his later years, he remarked that if it had been me, I'd have quit a dozen times, but they never quit. I didn't know if I was doing it right or not, but it was the only way I knew how to do it. Bryant's equating of handling extreme conditions with success has stuck around. Bryant and the story of the Junction Boys form the basis of our model of toughness, setting the standard for how a generation defined it. It is arguably one of the origin stories for this narrative, a Darwinian survival of the fittest trope that is taking place in homes and athletic fields and workplaces across the country. Siphon off the weak, let the strong remain. Those who survive will thrive. Those who don't make the cut, well, they could find something easier to do. No water, go until you puke. Hardened players, develop thick skin. A sort of Machiavellian, the end justifies the means concept. So I want to stop there. And that was the intro to chapter two. And in chapter two, I then go on to say, well, where did Bryant get this from? Often, Bryant and other coaches of his generation came out of World War II and being in the military. And I go on to show how the military originally kind of had this idea of toughness, but in the you know, decade since World War II, they've updated and realized what actually works. And I tell this fascinating research that found that, you know, 96% of soldiers experience dissociation when put in a survival, a simulated survival, you know, phase, which is essentially they lose track of what's going on. Their perception goes haywire. They feel like they're in that fog of war. And the military really quickly realized that the old-school model didn't work for helping people keep their minds steady when they were in survival, when they were uh, captured as POWs, when they were in really tough times. Instead, they had to modernize and teach people the skills to develop and navigate through difficult things. So yes, in the military, we think of the Navy SEALs and doing crazy stuff like that, but every branch of the military has their own kind of strength-based mental performance model. Which says, "Hey, how do I develop the skill set?" And in fact, some of the in the last decade, there's been phenomenal research and even you know uh, papers coming out of the military that says, "Hey, we've got to develop these mental skills." And the 1940s model doesn't work. For example, a couple of studies found that elite soldiers appraise stress as a challenge instead of a threat, thanks in large part to a better assessment of what they encountered. So. Not ignoring reality, but embracing it. Uh, The soldiers who handle stress better utilize a diverse array of methods to cope with stress, so they have a high degree of cognitive flexibility. They tend to process internal signals better better, without reacting to them, so it's not ignoring their feelings and, and emotions, they process them better. And then the final thing that research has kind of found with soldiers is they didn't react to negative stimuli, but instead were able to change their physiological state. So they were kind of in control uh, when the chaos was happening. And I go into a bunch more in the in the, in the book. So if it sounds interesting, give it a read or hop on over to Audible, which I as you know I'm writing this. It's right outside the top 100 on all of Audible. So you know, if you like listening books, go for it. And then I just want to add a couple things. With every book, you have to cut things out. And in this Junction Boys story, I actually had to trim this down quite a bit because it was so fascinating to me that I just kept going, digging deeper and researching and going back to newspapers of the day and, and finding stuff. And there were some phenomenal stories that i didn't get to tell for instance one was I'm, I'm blanking on the name but bryant had at that time the best running back high school recruit in the country and perhaps the history like he was a texas running back high school legend set all sorts of state national records was widely considered as this guy's going to be the the guy in the thing and he failed he didn't translate that well on the college scene and bryant was his coach and bryant again off the top of my head i don't remember the quote but when asked later in his career of well what what was one of your biggest mistakes and he said not developing this this high school phenom and he was like i only knew one way at that time in his coaching career and that was you know the hard ass disciplinarian etc And he said, I wish I would have had them essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, later in my career when I knew how to develop people better. And I thought that was, again, a fascinating insight from a coach. And it also shows, again, this part isn't to disparage Paul Bear Bryant, obviously a phenomenal coach, but it's to show that we all learn and grow and progress. And part of learning and growing progress is maybe not sticking to the 1950s models of of what tended to work and and what actually doesn't. And one other quick story that didn't make it into the book was this fascinating character named Bill Bull Cyclone Sullivan, who was a contemporary coach along with Bryant, who coached at, I believe it was some junior college at that time. And he was known as this crazy guy who was even tougher than Bear Bryant and, and some of these other um, coaches. He was famous for you know cursing all the time and doing crazy things on, on, in the middle of nowhere. I think it was Kansas he was. Um, but he had a couple of these great quotes. Okay, And he said, there are two reasons people play football. One is love of the game. The other is out of fear. I like the second reason a hell of a lot better. And why I love this story and why I almost included it, and there's this fascinating piece by the Sports Illustrated writer Frank DeFord that I highly recommend, so just Google it. Um, But Cyclone, Bryant, both came from the military. And there were other coaches I was researching at this time, and what they did was they took this military style of coming out of, again, World War II era which, remember, it was a draft, so it was, and it was a little more primitive, and what happened is, you know, during the World War eras, it was like we need bodies and people, and we got to train them up very, very quickly, so we're going to put them through this drill sergeant, huge dr- disciplinarian approach really quickly so that they can survive, hopefully out on the battlefield and be thrown into war, Um and then, as I outline later in chapter two, after this era, era World War Two and then Korean War, they realize the military realized, "Oh crap! Like our our people aren't aren't prepared, especially as prisoners of war, they aren't prepared or for survival, they aren't prepared for it at all." That's where a uh, survival. Um, Training or survival school actually came about in the military was after going through these, these two things. But there was another quote from this Frank DeFord Bull Sullivan um, article that I think captured it, captured this idea of toughness and in intertwining with the military and coaches taking it from the military at this time. And Frank DeFord writes, He never quite separated war and football. Flipping through what seems to be a scrapbook dedicated entirely to football, one suddenly comes to a long clipping about Okinawa with a huge headline, Bloodiest Battle of the Pacific. And again, that, that story brilliantly told by Frank just gets at this intertwinement of toughness, old school toughness, military and sport, because many in the military became the next generation coaches, and they defaulted to, okay, how do we know how to lead? Well, let's take these lessons from the military. And as we've now known, the modern military has grown, adapted, no longer uses that. So hopefully another interesting insight. Again, if you're interested, check out Do Hard Things. So, again, I hope you enjoyed this brief excerpt. If this is something you like that we do, kind of giving you a behind-the-scenes look, please reach out. If you enjoyed the excerpt and have already read the book, thank you. And consider passing this along to, you know, someone who hasn't and or recommending the book to someone who hasn't. It'll help them listen to the podcast. And we spend a lot of time and effort to, um, you know, come out with books and they allow us to do the things that we do for free like this podcast. So your support is, is greatly appreciated. And as you can tell, there's a lot more that goes into the book than actually makes it. So um, there's a lot more even in this Bryant story that I is phenomenal. So maybe I'll expand on that in a future podcast or growth equation newsletter. So thanks for listening. And uh, take care of everybody. Check out Do Hard Things on sale everywhere.